Just, just, just pray with me for a moment as we start. Father, it is one of the, the biggest, the most glorious, the most impactful, the most life-changing, the most unfathomable, incomprehensible passages in all of Scripture. And without your Spirit, we may know nothing. Without your Spirit, we would have no insight. I just pray that you may inflame the eyes of our hearts to believe, to trust you in who you are from this passage and how we are connected to you, can never be separated from you. And this may give us such a confidence as we face 2024. To the praise of your glory, your mercy and grace. Amen. Well, there's a title for you, One Thing I Know. One Thing I Know. We'll look at it in Romans 8, 28 to 39. So welcome to 2024. Welcome. We are seven days in. What is 20... Some of you are already huffing and puffing nearly. What's going on? All right. Uh, What is 2024 going to be like? I'll tell you what it's going to be like. It's going to be like a bag of licorice, all sorts. Hmm. I mean, you know, licorice all sorts, some of it you love and some of it you hate, right? You know those big ones, you toss them out there. Some of, some of 2024 is going to be very good. Some of it's going to be good. Some of it's going to be not so good. Some of it's going to be bad. Some of it's going to be very bad. And some of it's going to be plain downright ugly. That's what's coming. Now, we don't know in detail exactly what is coming, but there are some things that the Lord has said we can know. So, for example, and... Uh, What would you say Abraham knew, the one thing that Abraham knew from this verse, talking about Abraham, being fully persuaded in Romans 4 that God had the power to do what he had promised? What's the one thing that Abraham knew? Pretty obvious. God had the power to do what he promised, right? How about the blind man in John 9.25? What's the one thing that the blind man knew? The blind man says, whether he, Jesus, is a sinner or not, I don't know. But one thing I do know, I was blind, but now I I see. I wonder if you know this morning, do you know that you were blind, but now you see? Or perhaps actually you're someone here this morning who is still blind. But there was also one thing that the rich guy in Mark 10, 21 lacked. Do you remember that? Jesus looked at the rich guy, looked at him and loved him and said, one thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have, give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, then come and follow me. There was one thing he lacked. I wonder this morning whether you understand that there is nothing you lack in Christ, but there are some spiritual things that you lack. As we come to Romans 8, This morning, there is one central thing that Paul wants us to know. And it's in 831. What then shall we say in response to all these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, it's a rhetorical question that only has one answer. So if you had to fill in that blank from that verse, what would you say? 
What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? One thing I know. How would you finish it? God is for me. Or God is for us. This whole passage is wrapped around this one thing. Paul wants to this morning, the apostles so deeply persuade us that God is for us. Because if God is for us, then we can absolutely confidently face 2024 no matter what comes. As we consider this, let's first ask this question. What might make us feel that God is not for us? If you and I are honest this morning, to coin a phrase from John Dixon, we sometimes have a sneaky suspicion that at times, maybe many times, God is not for us. There are things that happen that make us feel that God might not be for us the way we thought. Isn't it pretty unsettling when you know that someone's against you? When you know that someone's against you or you think someone's against you, you certainly don't trust that relationship, do you? You find yourself pretty guarded around that person. You certainly wouldn't be phoning that person for help. You're not going to be sharing deep things with them because you don't know what they might do with what you share. You simply do not trust someone you either know or feel is against you. And so here's the thing. As Christians, we can sometimes hear that fleshy, demonic voice that says, God is just not for you the way that you thought. Just not with you the way that you believe. And here's a couple of reasons. Number one, we can hear that demonic, fleshy voice because we can get a distorted view of God. We can get this view of God that somehow he's just like some sort of raging lion waiting to pounce on us the moment that we fail. That God is like some sort of wrath-spewing volcano that's just going to bust his lid every time we fail and fall and slip up. You see, if that's the type of God or even a part of the type of God that you have, you're never going to trust him, are you? You're never going to feel like that. that sort of God is for you. This sort of God produces a religiosity where people are always trying to appease God. They're always trying to buy his favor. Because if they don't buy his favor, God's not going to be pleased with them. If God's not pleased with them, then at some point, God's just going to break out and somehow sort you out. So we can get a distorted view of God. But secondly, and this is a big one, isn't it? The experience of hardships give us that sneaky suspicion that God is maybe not for us. This really was the hard cry of Job. Remember Job? Job had this, 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 this incredible experience of the loss of family, the loss of wealth, the loss of health. His cry for over 40 chapters was simply, God, are you really for me? Seriously? If you've allowed all this tragedy to happen in my life, surely, are you really for me? That's like the slow burn question for 40 chapters in Job. How would you finish the statement this morning? My God, my God, how can you be for me if you've allowed to take place in my life? 
How did you finish that this morning? Look down at verse 35. You see the things that Paul mentions, don't you? Troubles, hardships, persecutions, famines, nakedness, dangers, sword, and so much more. You see, these are the very things that cause us to think, feel at times that God is not for us. And here's how it works. We know that God is in control, right? We know that God is in control of all things. We know he controls hardships, famines, persecutions, nakedness, dangers, swords, and all the rest. We know he controls those things. So if God controls all those things and allows these things to happen in our lives, well, then God surely cannot be for us. And you see, that's the atheistic point of view. If God allows Mm, into your life, which is bad, then either at best God is a bad God or he's a God that doesn't exist at all. A third reason why we might not feel that God is for us is because of the way God answers prayers. I mean, you do feel that God is just with you when he answers your prayers, right? When you get those wonderful answers to prayer and everything's going right and good and well, what, what about when God doesn't answer your prayers the way you want him to answer? Or you pray, the very opposite thing happens. Or it feels like you pray and pray and pray and there's no answer. It feels like, uh, uh, to use John Donne's book, when, when heaven is silent. You see, when, when God doesn't answer prayers the way we want him to answer, we tend to think, well, maybe God is just not, there's a demonic fleshy voice going, it's just not with you, for you. How about this? You pray and you pray for to be saved and nothing happens. A person dies not coming to Christ. You pray for to be healed and the person dies. You pray for to be taken away, to be changed, to get better and things get worse. Maybe God is not for us the way we thought. Here's the fourth one. Lack of spiritual growth. You and I, we struggle and struggle and struggle against deeply ingrained patterns of sin. If you're like me, you've begged God to take it away, take it away, change me, change me, change me. But so often little progress is made, so when you keep falling, surely if God was for us, we would make more spiritual progress than we do. Or at least go quicker than what it seems to be going at the present time. I mean, surely God cannot be for me if he's not moving the sanctification thing along quite as quick as I want. But then there's a fifth one, ongoing rebellion and sin. You could actually be sitting here this morning and not yet a Christian. But one of the reasons why you have still not accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is because you think that you've been in rebellion against him so long, the things you've done are so bad, there is no possible way that God could be for you. There's no possible way he could forgive you because of what you've done. And you sit here this morning, maybe you've sat in this church for many, many years, and you have just got a simple, slow burn of guilt. We'll come back to those five things at the end. From this passage, I'm now going to give you three reasons how Paul persuades us 
utterly persuades us that God is for us. And if God is for us, you're then about to see two life-changing applications. So let's start. Here's the first one. We touched on it at communion. The Father gave you Jesus. Have a look at verse 32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. Hear it like this. How could God be against you if he gave you his son? How could God be against you if he did not spare his son for you? If the Father gave you his Son, if the Father gave you Christ, if the Father did not spare his only glorious, sinless, begotten Son for you, a sinner, how, how on earth could he ever be against you? Look at this in Romans 4. In, in your sin, you were wicked before God. You were, if you're a Christian this morning, you were wicked. However, to the one who does not work but trusts God, who justifies the wicked. In your sin, Romans 5 verse 10, for while we were God's enemies, you were an enemy of God. So listen, there is no other way to persuade you, convince you, press upon you that God is for you other than to say the Father gave you his Son. If the Father gave that which is most precious to him, if the Father gave that which he loves so much, how could God ever be against you? There's an incredible story in the Old Testament in Genesis 22. Some of you will, will know it. And it's a story where God says to Abraham, right? Take your son, Isaac, and take him up Mount Moriah. And do you remember the story? And he tells Abraham to, to sacrifice him. Let's read. When they reached the place that God had told them about, Mount Moriah, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar and on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you've not withheld from me your son, your only son. Do you know why you know that God is for you? Because God didn't spare the knife on his son. God did not spare the knife for you on that cross. God did not spare Jesus on that crucifixion for your son. He spared Isaac, but he did not spare Jesus. How could God be against you? Now, hold on to your seats, because that's just the start. As astounding as that might be, we could sit here this morning and maybe get the impression that maybe God giving us his son was something like plan B after Adam and Eve messed it all up in the garden. Or maybe we might get the impression, well, you know, God gave me a son, but it really was my choice. It really was my free will whether I get saved or not. Here's what Paul says. You can know that God is for you, not only because the Father gave you Jesus, but the Father gave you Jesus in eternity. 
Have a look at verses 29 and 30 with me. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Okay, now Christian, you've got to give me your ears. Christian, your salvation did not start the day you received the gift of Jesus. Your salvation started in the eternality of God. Your salvation was not some sort of random act, but actually was set in eternity past. You did not choose Jesus in any ultimate sense. The Father chose you in eternity to be adopted as his son and daughter to the praise of his mercy and grace. You need to understand, Christian, this morning that your salvation is the result of a glorious, unbreakable, eternal, sovereign plan of God. Have a look at the text. Christian, make it personal. Christian, he foreknew you. Christian, he predestined you to be like Jesus. Verse 30, he called you, Christian. He justified you, Christian. He glorified you, Christian. Now, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great London preacher, took 24 sermons to go through those things. I'm going to give it to you in one. Okay, so here we go. Here's just a little taste. Christian, God foreknew you. God is omniscient, meaning he knows, every, uh, he, he knows everything. He knows the future. Yes, he knows who will be saved, but that is not what Paul is talking about. The Greek word for foreknowing is that God simply chose you Christian in eternity past. Before the beginning of time, Christian, God chose to choose you as a son or daughter. Secondly, he predestined you to be like Jesus. To be predestined means to predetermine a, a, a destination. It means to make a plan ahead of time. It means to... to Determine a horizon and set out for it. God predetermined, predestined to have a relationship with you and then to conform you more and more and more and more into the image of his son. And he called you. Put it like this. Because he foreknew you, chose you, and because he predestined you, He called you in time through the gospel to himself. This is what theologians call the effectual call of God. It was the day in your history when your spiritual blind eyes were opened to see the beauty of Christ. It was the day that your eyes of your heart were opened to see, to see, the, uh, to see his sinless life, his sacrificial death, his splendorous resurrection for you. The day of your calling was the day that you, you suddenly realized you were blind, but now you see. It was the day when you suddenly realized that you lacked Jesus Christ and you needed him more than anything else in the world. Let's put it this way. Because you were foreknown, you were predestined. And because you were predestined, you were called effectually in time, in history, through the gospel. And what happened at the time of your calling, what did he do? He, he justified you. 
To be justified simply means that he declared that you are righteous and blameless in his sight because of what Jesus did. You were unrighteous, but because of Jesus, now God declares you righteous. You were wicked, God now declares you a saint, a holy one. You were an enemy of God, now God declares you a friend of God. And then just to finish it, in verse 30, he says, Ooh, he glorified you. To be glorified simply means to be raised bodily from the dead, where time when all sin will be eradicated from your body, and you will spend eternity in the resurrection with the resurrected Christ and all of God's resurrected people. But you look at verse 30, and you notice in what tense is it in? Have you been glorified yet? Have you? No, but what does it say? But it's like he has, right? It's in the past tense. Do you see that? He puts it in the past tense because your glorification is so short, it's like it's already happened. There's no way it can't ever happen. Put it this way. If you were foreknown, predestined, called, justified, do you think God's going to glorify you? Put it another way. If God foreknew you, predestined, called, justified, oh, you're just not going to make it to the end, are you? The rest is up to you, mate. Christian, is God for you? If God gave you Jesus in time, and if the Father gave you Jesus in eternity, is God for you? It must be. It has to be. It can't never not be. Surely. But there's one more, at least. Jesus prays for you. Have a look at verse 35. I think it's 35 or 34. 34. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God, there interceding for us. Now, I think it is safe to say this morning that the most neglected, or at least one of the most neglected doctrines in all of the Bible is the heavenly intercession of Christ before the Father. The predestined plan of God for you was secured at the death and resurrection of Jesus in time. Let me ask you, what's Jesus doing now? What's he doing? Well, if you look at the verse, you'd say what? Well, he's at the right hand of... God, we, we know that, and, and therefore to be at the right hand means he's sitting down, which means he's reigning. But what, what is he doing? He's interceding. Jesus is interceding for you. Jesus is praying for you. You remember last week, we had the Holy Spirit interceding and praying for us. If you missed that sermon, grab it online. Here Jesus is interceding. Now, you know what intercession is, don't you? Intercession in general terms is where you've got a third party and they sort of, they make a case for one party to the other one, right? Does that make sense? So, so for example, a parent interceding to a teacher on behalf of a child, that's intercession. Or a, an agent interceding to a sporting, sporting franchise on behalf of an athlete. I guess the question is, why, why does Jesus need to intercede for us? Hasn't Jesus done everything? Wasn't it all finished at the cross? Wasn't it all done there? What else does Jesus need to do? 
Well, the only way I can explain it to you is to give you three quotes by a guy called Dan Ortland in his book, Gentle and Lowly. If you haven't read it, you need to get it. I'll give you a couple of quotes. Here it comes. Why does Jesus need to intercede for us? The answer is that intercession applies what the atonement accomplished. The atonement accomplished our salvation, planned in eternity, my words. Intercession is the moment-by-moment application of the atoning work. In the past, Jesus did what he now talks about. In the present, Jesus talks about what he did then. Phew, okay, that's a bit discombobulating. Let's try this one. Intercession is the constant hitting refresh of our justification in the court of heaven. Ooh. That one you'll have to chew on for most of the year. Let me give you another one. His interceding for us reflects his heart. The same heart that carried him through life and down into death on the behalf of his people is the heart that now manifests itself in constant pleading with and reminding and prevailing upon his Father to always welcome us. And to sum it up this way, if you're in Christ, therefore, you have an intercessor in heaven. You've got a present-day mediator. And you know what Jesus is doing, to put it this way? Jesus is happily celebrating with the Father all the reasons why both of them would always embrace us with his deepest heart. How do you know that God is for you? Your salvation was secured by the Father in giving His Son to you at the cross. Your salvation was secured by the Father by giving, him your, giving you His Son in the past, eternity past. And your salvation is secured by the ongoing intercession of Jesus Christ before the Father. Is God for you? I think it's the only conclusion you can come to, which is exactly what Paul's trying to get at. Now, here we go. If God is for, are you convinced? At least, are you persuaded this morning? Because God gave you Jesus, gave you Jesus in the past, and Jesus intercedes you, at least a couple of amen, are you convinced, persuaded that God is for you? Yeah? Your head might be going a bit, but it's okay. I want to show you two applications in the passage. Here's the first one. If God is for you always, then God works out everything for your good always. Does that make sense? How do you know that God works everything for good? How do you know? Because He is with you. And we know that... And we know that for those who who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Let me put it this way. If your salvation has 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 been secured in the past, the present, it will be done in glory, then you can know that God works out everything for good in your life. Not that everything is good. He works everything for your good. Turn it another way around. Actually, let me put this into the negative for you. 
If the Father hadn't given you his son at the cross, if the Father hadn't given you Jesus in eternity past, if Jesus wasn't interceding for you, you could absolutely have no confidence that God is working in everything for your good. Does that make sense? Faith is trusting what God says. Someone in the week um, really asked a very helpful question. They said, well, Paul, I'm so glad I want to get into Romans 8 because I, I, I want to know how God works out everything for good. That you can't, you can't have that. Faith, faith is not understanding how God works out everything. Faith is believing that he, that he does. And the way that you know that he does is because he's always for you. The way that you know he's always for you is because he gave you Jesus past, present, and future. That's the deal. One other way. The way that you know that God works out everything in your life for your good is because of the way he has meticulously planned your salvation from the very past to the very future in glorification. Here comes the second one. If God is always for you, then he always loves you, right? If you know God is for you, then you know God always loves you. That's what he says in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? What's the answer? Nothing. Listen, if God is for you, always, as you've just been persuaded, there's nothing that can unhinge you from the love of Christ. There's nothing that can stop God loving you. There's nothing that can get in the way. There's nothing that can trip God up. There's nothing you can do to stop him loving you. Have a look at it in verse 37. No, Paul says, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us, because I'm convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, nor the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Right, here's the test. Remember those five sneaky suspicions that I told you at the beginning of the service? Remember them? These are the five sneaky suspicions that come in and say, oh, maybe, maybe God is not for you. If God is for us and therefore always loves us, can God possibly be some sort of volatile, wrath-spewing, volcano kind of God? Is that possible? It's not possible. If God is for us and therefore always loves us, is there anything, is there any hardship? Is there any hardship that could separate us from his love? Answer? No. 
if God is for us and therefore always loves us, can we accept his answers to our prayers that they're always loving answers, even when they're not what we want? Can we accept that? If God is for us and he loves us, can we accept that his prayers are loving answers? Not things that show that God is not for us. If God is always for us and always loves us, and we're not experiencing the spiritual growth that we want, are we able to accept that God is doing his work of making us like Jesus on his time, in his way, and we can accept a loving timetable from God. And finally, if you're sitting here this morning, and you are someone that is sitting here thinking there's just no possible way that God could be for me because of what I've done, God is for you. He gave his son for you. For God so loved you that he did not spare his son that whoever believes in him, even you, you will not perish but have eternal life. You're sitting here this morning in the slow burn of guilt. You need to hear that God loves you. Because he gave you Jesus. This is love. Not that we love God, but He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Are you going to finish that this morning? As the gathering team comes up,